When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Steve Bergsman to discuss his book, Chapel of Love, the story of New Orleans girl group, the Dixie Cups, which he co-authored with Rosa Hawkins. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Steve Bergsman, the co-author of Chapel of Love, the story of New Orleans girl group, the Dixie Cups. Steve, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. And so this was a bit more of a harrowing read than I expected. And I want to give a trigger warning for anybody who's uh, you know, triggered by accounts of sexual assault, because these girls had really, really, really bad management. They did. And uh, this I always say this is the story of exploitation and obsession. And uh, it goes beyond just the, the music business. But their, their, their manager, Joe Jones, who was famous, he was a famous artist. He had a song. Um, you talk too you much. You talk too much. Yeah, you talk too much, which was a, a top five song uh, in the early 60s, I believe. Uh, I lose track now. I've moved on to other books, but uh, so I, I may not get my dates right here, but I'll try. So anyway, yeah, Joe Jones, 1960, you talk too much, and it was a top five song, but later on, he couldn't find the right follow-up, moved on in the music business, and he took over the management of the Dixie Cups uh, for good or worse. How's that? <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah, there's a quote in the book that, that I want to read that says, the three young ladies suffered through terrible mismanagement and were abused financially, professionally, and sexually. All that grief is the underlying reason this book was created. So um, definitely not worth the price they paid, but to the extent that it spurred them to tell their story, I'm glad they did. Or, you know, Rosemarie, at least, who was... Um, Rosa Hawkins, sorry, Joan Marie Johnson was their cousin, who was the second member, and then the founding member was Barbara Ann Hawkins, Rosa's sister. And so, if you if you see a picture of them, uh, Rosa Hawkins is the tall, skinny one, and uh, her sister Barbara Ann is the very short one. And then they've gone on. Joan Marie quit in the late '60s, and they've gone on with third Dixie Cups, including one of the Neville sisters, sometimes. But I'm not glad this happened to them. I'm glad for the music. Um, 
but I'm glad that that uh, Rosa got to tell her story because it's it's quite a powerful story and really unique. But before we get into the Dixie Cups, let's talk a little bit more about Joe Jones. So he had his his um, you talk too much pop hit, also RB hit, and it was produced by a woman named Sylvia Vanderpool that we know for two different reasons. She was Sylvia of Mickey and Sylvia, and of Love Is Strange fame, and she also goes on to become the owner and co-founder of Sugar Hill Records, the rap music label. So she's a music biz mainstay and also had a string of hits as Sylvia Robinson in the 70s. So how does Joe Jones hook up with Sylvia Robinson, who's in New York, and he's coming out of New Orleans? So the story on Joe Jones, uh, after his service, he came back to New Orleans, and uh, this was in the uh, late 1940s. And uh, uh, this was about the time that rock and roll or pre-rock and roll, proto-rock and roll was uh, beginning to take off around the country. It was still called rhythm and blues at the time. And he formed the band and, and they played this kind of proto rock and roll and they he claimed uh, the the problem with Joe Jones and I don't I don't want to get political here but he had the sort of the same problem that a past president had he had <laughs> difficulty telling the truth so it, you have to track down his stories like so he claimed that he um, backed up uh uh, one of the first uh, rock and roll records ever recorded, which was done at Casimo Matas's studio, recording studio in New Orleans. So I got to go back again to uh, to what was happening in the South. So most of the recording, uh, if you were going to record seriously, you went to New York or Los Angeles. Uh, and it was only in the late 40s after, uh, after World War II that the first recording studios began to appear in the South. The first was uh, a small studio in Nashville, and um, the second was Casimo Matas's small studio in New Orleans. Now, why did they appear in Nashville and New Orleans? Well, because there was so much talent in those cities at the time. So, uh, Joe Jones said he was here or there with his with his band, but he but he wasn't. But he he was there at the sort of creation of the New Orleans uh, foundation of rock and roll. And when we think of uh, where are the nodes of rock and roll, where did it start? And you think of New York or Los Angeles again, but uh, New Orleans was just as important, and it was because of this small studio. So he he recorded and uh, with his band wasn't very successful, but uh, one of the uh, the the um, groups in by the mid fifties who got together it wasn't a group it was a duo, Mickey and Sylvia and Mickey Baker was uh, the uh, the guitarist, a session guitarist extraordinaire. If you wanted to re- need a, needed a, a guitarist 
for for your recording sessions, you 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 got in touch with Mickey Baker in the in the early fifties, and uh, <laughs> he he even recorded on Screaming Jay Hawkins. I put a spell on you, so you know he was good because he was uh, according to the legend. Everybody at, there was flat out so flat out drunk they could barely stand, but <laughs> they still managed to get a, a recording of "I Put a Spell on You." So anyway, Mickey Baker got together with uh, uh, Sylvia. Um, I'm sorry, I forget her uh, maiden Vanderpool. name, but she became Vanderpool, and uh, she married Joe Robinson, and she be, and eventually became Sylvia Robinson. Sylvia Robinson. So anyway, he backed her uh, when 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 uh, Mickey and Sylvia began touring. He he backed them up. So that's how he knew uh, um, Sylvia. So jump forward a bit. Uh, so now he's talent scouting uh, in New Orleans, Joe Jones, and uh, he comes. He's at a uh, and they had a lot of uh, there was so much talent in New Orleans that the high schools would have these great talent shows. And they were famous for these talent shows. And, and, he, and he sees uh, a couple of people at a talent show that he, he thinks could make it big nationally under the right management, meaning under his management. And one of the groups uh, that he sees is um, three girls and a guy, and they call themselves the Meltones. And and but he they weren't the first on his on his list. There were uh, one or two other singers that he wanted to contact first. And it just so happens that uh, one of these singers was good friends with Barbara Hawkins. And when it, he con- when Joe Jones contacts this other singers singer Barbara Hawkins was there, and she goes with her friend to meet Joe Jones for the first time. And, and Joe Jones is, is surprised because the, the Meltones, Barbara Hawkins says she was, you know, saying at the, with the Meltones, he was surprised because the Meltones was one of the, the acts he really was interested in. And, and that, and that night he goes to uh, the Hawkins residence uh, and meets the Meltone and uh, thinks they have talent. And he, the first person he calls is um, Sylvia to say, look, I got this talent. I don't have any money. He never has any money. Uh, <laughs> and uh, say, if you front me on this, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring these, these girls and my other acts. He had two other acts he wanted, he was interested in. I'll bring them to New York and we'll share, you know, the, the, if we make it, we'll share that. And Sylvia says, uh, sure, come on up. Now, Sylvia, uh, Mickey and Sylvia were at this point uh, gone. Let, let's just say Mickey really wanted to give up, give up performing uh, and touring uh, in the United States, and he wanted to Go, go to Europe, and that's what he did, and he settled in Europe, Mickey Baker. Uh, and Sylvia uh, had huge, huge aspirations, and, and she had ambition, and she was a tough cookie and a go-getter. But at this point, she was between all that, and she gets Joe Jones' phone call, 
And she says, sure, I'll help you out. Bring them, bring them on up to New York. So um, there, there were teenagers. Now, the male talent, there were four of them. Let me jump in. But he realized, excuse let, me? Let me jump in and let's hear um, Joe Jones's big hit. This is Joe Jones doing You Talk Too Much. And that was Joe Jones, You Talk Too Much, which made number three pop, number five R&B, I think. And before we go too much into the Dixie Cups, I wanted, there's one more story about Joe Jones in this record that I think is so telling about Joe Jones's business practices. He originally cuts it on the infamous Roulette Records, which is Morris Levy and George Goldner's label. And Morris Levy is the guy who's so shady that one of the principal characters of The Sopranos was based on him. And... Joe isn't happy with the version he cuts with Roulette. It doesn't go anywhere. I don't even think they released it. But he goes back to New Orleans and cuts another version with Rick Records that is a hit, and Morris Levy immediately steps in and takes it back. So that's just kind of how shady and short-sighted Joe Jones is, that he would cross somebody as scary as Morris Levy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he, 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 Joe Jones... He could play fast and lose. If he was contracted to somebody else, uh, let's say to Roulette, he had a contract with Roulette, then he'd play fast and loose. But if it was his management company and you were uh, in contract to him, then he was an absolute dictator. You were never getting out of that contract. So uh, in that case, with you talk too much, uh, Roulette had the rights to the song, but Joe Jones didn't care. He was down in New Orleans. Rick was uh, a, a local label, and he said, I just want to record it again. But he didn't have the rights to the song, and uh, Roulette did. And when, when it started to take off, Roulette said, guess what, guys? It's ours. And um, and that's what happened. And, and Roulette took it back, and you talked too much was um, a big hit on Roulette Records, but it, you're right. Morris Levy was not one of those characters you wanted to cross ever. But Joe Jones would never, never learned his lessons. And none of the money and, goes uh, to Joe Jones. He gets, he gets he gets no money for his big hit record and and contributing to his chronic pennilessness. But before we talk about the talent show and Joe and the Dixie Cups, I want to talk a little bit about the formation of the Dixie Cups and the relationship between the two sisters, because it's kind of a circuitous tale. I mean, um, our narrator, Rosa, is not was not the ambitious one. She was sort of talented and kept getting pulled into singing groups. It was her big sister, the tiny one, who... Um, was actually the one Barbara was the one that was was out there singing and starting groups and um, getting mixed up in the scene in New York and and they're friends with the Neville brothers Aaron and Art and they sing backup or Barbara at least sang backup for Harold Batiste who had arranged Sam Cooke's You Send Me so they're in this scene um, how did it actually happen that 
Rosa ends up at the talent show with Barbara and their cousin, Joe Marie. So you have to remember these girls are teenagers and Rosa was three years behind Barbara. So in all this formation period, Rosa is just a, uh, uh, a mid-teen, you might say. So Barbara uh, graduates, she's 18, she's, she's very ambitious, she loves to sing, and uh, she gets gigs here and there, and she's uh, sort of working her way through the musical community of New Orleans. But Rosa is still in high school. So uh, she hasn't learned yet to be as ambitious as her sister. Uh, she's still worried about high school things. Uh, and the most singing she does is in the chorus. So that's it. Uh, and extent, she's just a, a young, young teenager. So she wasn't quite there yet uh, emotionally or uh, or. And her aspirations were very simple. Well, gee, I'll graduate high school, I'll, I'll go to college, and uh, uh, I'll get a degree and become a, a, a phys ed teacher. And that's all she, she thought about. Uh, nobody knew there was a, a career in their future. So she, she enjoyed what Barbara, they were very, they were close, but they were still three years apart. So she liked what Barbara was doing, but she, she didn't feel it had any relevance to what she does. She was doing because she was in high school. So, uh, but Barbara, but she was a good, Barbara realized her sister was a good singer and she, as much as possible, would include her younger singer in, in some of the things she did. And that was, that included, um, uh, the, the formation of the Meltones, which is the predecessor name to the Dixie Cups. And, and what happened was there was a, a couple of friends who got together, Barbara's friends, who got together to record as the Meltones. And uh, they're all teenagers still. And one, you know, that some of them drop out because they have teenager problems. And there was a boy in the group whose uh, mother got sick and he had to leave and go to work uh, to help support the family. And they needed a uh, quote unquote base in the group. And it, it turns out that Rosa had a, 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 a deeper quality to her singing voice than the other girls. So Barbara said, uh, you know, when they, when they lost this uh, boy uh, out of the group, Barbara said, oh, let's use Rosa because she's a base. Well, <laughs> Rosa always uh, always uh, took umbrage at that because she showed, well, a base, that's a boy. But <laughs> she, she did have that lower quality to her voice. Yeah, she called herself a contralto, I think. And, and it's striking to me just the sort of randomness and the fate um, aspect of this that, that Rosa Hawkins has pulled into this orbit and that it ends up dominating her life. I mean, the Dixie Cups becomes her life's work and the thing that she's famous for. And it, it's, you know, just so funny that, that she wasn't even trying to be in the band at the talent show and just singing a talent show was all she committed to. And then Joe Jones gets pulled into it. And I love the story of Joe Jones showing up at their mother's house 
and um you know telling them that he was the band leader for Roy Brown's Good Rockin' Tonight, which he wasn't, claiming that he had joined the Navy and fought in World War II, which he hadn't, claimed he discovered Shirley and Lee, which he hadn't. Uh, you know, uh, the the Dr. John has this great quote, Joe talked his way into deals and talked his way out just as quick. And then <laughs> he he asked, uh, uh, you know, Mrs. Hawkins if he can use her phone and doesn't mention he's going to run up this huge long-distance tab. And, and that was back in the day when long-distance phone calls were very, very expensive and, you know, calls Shirley Robinson and other people uh, around the country and runs up, you know, this multi-hundred dollar phone bill. But, you know, Mrs. Hawkins is kind of vulnerable to this because she had also sung in bands herself. What was her musical background a little bit? So one of the most famous local musicians uh, during the early part of the 20th century was uh, a, a, a fellow called Papa Celestine. And uh, he, he really began in the big band era of the 20s and the 30s. Uh, he had to drop out of the music scene, make some money. It was World War II. World War II ended, and Papa Celestine reformed his band and uh, he needed a lead singer. A lot of the bands had female lead singers at this time. And uh, his, his lead singer was uh, the mother of uh, Rosa and Barbara. So, that's, so she had a, a musical background. And Papa Celestine is forgotten these days, but he had a, a song. It, it was borderline national hit, but it was really very, very famous in New Orleans, and it was called Marie Laveau. And Marie Laveau was, quote-unquote, the witch queen of New Orleans. And I don't know if, uh, if, <laughs> if, if listeners remember um, uh, the, the great um, hippie uh, movie of the 60s with Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson. The movie is? Easy Rider, of course. Easy Rider. And there's a scene where all, they all, all, all the protagonists uh, do an acid trip and they end up in uh, one of the grave, one of the famous graveyard cemeteries in New Orleans. And they end up at the grave of Marie Laveau. It's a very famous grave. So anyway, Papa Celestine had this famous song, Marie Laveau. His, um, um, Barbara and Rose's mother was uh, uh, a singer for the group. And uh, she eventually had to uh, sort of drop out of the, uh, the music business and because she had two kids. And um, she worked her way up uh, in the community uh, and um, was a kind of a political force, minor, but a political force in the, um, the black community of New Orleans. She even had a column in the local news, in black independent newspaper there. So she was somewhat well known. And uh, she was uh, 
somebody to be reckoned with because uh, one time when he felt her her ballot was compromised, her voting rights were compromised. She don't forget this is the '60s, early '60s, the late '50s. A lot of segregation in the country throughout the South, including New Orleans. Uh, she bravely, bravely uh, uh, took the issue to court and won. So uh, she was a force to be reckoned with, but she had that background in, in the entertainment industry. So when her two daughters had this, this opportunity to, uh, with Joe Jones comes to her and says, you're, you know, I can get your daughters a, a recording contract. I'll take them to New York. She was a little ambivalent, but she had that history in the entertainment industry. So she had, uh, she so she was sort of thinking that maybe maybe it's okay. It was good for me. Maybe it'll be okay for my daughters. She tried to uh, investigate Joe Jones, and she had sort of mixed reviews um, uh, of the people who knew him. Some people said he had talents. Some people said he was a bit shady. And but uh, she gambled uh, and said uh, to her daughters, "Yes, uh, he he has his opportunity for you. You can go to New York and uh, try your hand at being famous." Uh, I don't think she ever thought her uh, her uh, her daughters would would really succeed in, in in any major way, but she felt that she could she should at least give them this opportunity. And don't forget, Barbara was very ambitious, and uh, and she and although Rosa was still, I mean, she just graduated high school, Rosa, that Barbara would look after Rosa in this situation, and they brought in their cousin who was also old, older than Rosa. So uh, and she had, you know, did it all formally. She had all the guardian uh, uh, papers signed because they would be as they weren't adults yet and they needed the legal protection to travel with somebody else. And the, the young um, Hawkins girls who had never been out of the South, probably never been further than uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, uh, took their first trip to the Big Apple with Joe and, Jones. And let's hear the song that they were going to audition with, or that they did audition with to the various record labels in New York. This is a song by Earl King. Thank you, Mama. Thank you, Papa. This is the Dixie Cups version. And that was Thank You, Mama, Thank You, Papa by the Dixie Cups. And that's the song that they rehearsed and practiced. And when Joe Jones took them around New York, uh, financed by Sylvia Robinson, and they talked to various record labels, that's the song they sing. And they they hit a number of labels. And, and Joe is constantly asking for front money. He's looking to get money out of people before any deal is even signed. And that, that messes up the deal repeatedly. But they get to the Brill Building, and they meet a young couple, um, Jeff Berry and Ellie Greenwich. 
and tell us about that meeting and who Jeff and Ellie were working for and how it all came together that the Dixie Cups became the Dixie Cups. So uh, Joe Jones uh, is taking the Meltones around uh, New York to introduce them to various recording companies. And eventually, uh, you have to end up at the Brill Building. Uh, the Brill Building was in Midtown, New York, and it was really a, 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 a rabbit's warren of tiny offices and all the famous, uh, all the best uh, songwriters, and yeah, there were production companies in there as well, uh, were, were there. They were all based in one, they're actually based in two buildings. There was the Brill Building and uh, another building just slightly down the road on Broadway. and and this was the Tin Pan Alley of the 1950s. So all these, and these uh, songwriters uh, were very youthful. Some some of them were teenagers themselves. Carol King began as a te teenager there. Neil Sedaka began as a teenage songwriter. And and a lot of them were uh, worked together. So there was a, uh, uh, somebody did the music and somebody did the lyrics and they worked together. Uh, and how David and Burt Bacharach, for example, they got their start there as well in the Brill Building. So, and some of them were married couple, and uh, one of the married couples was was Jeff Barry and Ellie Grenick. And uh, uh, I, have a, I have a great affection for Ellie because she grew up in my hometown of Levittown, New York. So I have to throw that in there. So uh, Jeff and Ellie, uh, a married couple, and they. Uh, they were really excelled at these romantic songs for uh, for teenagers, and 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 I'll, I'll just throw out just a few of the many songs that they wrote. Uh, Be Be My Baby for the Ronette, the Do Ron Run, um, Then He Kissed Me. So they 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 really excelled at this thing. And Joe Jones is making the rounds. And he and they worked for um, Lieber and Stoller, uh, who were themselves in the first generation of songwriters in rock and roll. They they wrote uh, "Hound Dog" uh, for Big Mama Thornton, which became a hit for Elvis Presley. They wrote "Jailhouse Rock" and "Yakety Yak," but they had their own production company. Jeff and Ellie were were songwriters, uh, and they worked for Lieber and Stoller. Uh, Jerry, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, and they had been around since the early 50s, Lieber and Stoller. And they would uh, uh, continue songwriting into the, into the 60s. And famously, they, they wrote the Peggy Lee song, Is That All There Is, in, in the mid-60s. So, but they started out rock and roll. So anyway, uh, uh, Lieber and Stoller had got together with uh, George Goldner, uh, a fellow named George Goldner. Now, we, we talked about Morris Levy and, uh, and, and the fact that he was uh, connected to uh, criminal families. I won't use the term, might be a bit. he was connected to criminal families. And, and George Goldner was, uh, the criminal families had, had infiltrated the record business. And I don't think George Goldner was connected to the uh, the families, but he was an inveterate gambler, and 
he, uh, he was always in debt to these families, and he was a great, great um, a publisher. He had a good ear for music. He had a good ear, a good eye for talent, and and, and he'd uh, create these independent labels. And, and and right from the start, they'd have, uh, and he'd have big hits. And then uh, he'd be in debt to someone, and he'd have to sell off his his labels. And then uh, he finally created Redbird with Lieber and Stoller. And, and that's at that point in the uh, early '60s where Joe Jones brings in the Meltones, and the first people they meet uh, are Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Berry. And um, they say, okay, girls, what do you got? And um, they sing, uh, they sing for them. And they're, they're intrigued, uh, definitely are intrigued, because the girl group sound up until this point uh, was defined by a, a lead singer and, and background singer. So that it kind of grew up out of the doo-wop. Uh, music scene of the of the 1950s and doo-wop it was always a lead and background and then the first of the girl group singers the Shirelles and the Chantels in 1958 they they had the lead singer background singer so most by 1960s as the girl group sound is taking off that's what it looked like but the Meltones uh, I need to step back uh, uh, a moment. So the original Meltones that Joe Jones had were three girls and a guy. But Joe Jones, uh, he was a pretty shrewd guy. He knew the record business and he knew what was selling. And he said, you know, three girls and a guy is not going to, I can't sell that. But if I have three girls, I can sell that. So the guy, uh, uh, one of the boys in the, Mel the one boy in the Meltone, he was sort of left out of the whole thing. And when he came up to New York, it was just the three ladies, uh, Barbara, Rosa, and Joan Marie Johnson, their cousin. That, so the Meltones just consisted of those three girls. And when they were in the office of, of, of Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, the thing that they did different, and this is what caught the, the, the attention of Jeff and Ellie, they, they sang in three-part harmony now, nothing was, uh, uh, in those days, nothing was ever wasted. So if you uh, had a song and somebody sang it and it didn't make it, they just put it on the shelf and maybe somebody else would come along and uh, they'll take that, you know, the songwriters would take that song out and say, well, you try this. So sometimes you'd have uh, three or four, in the case of the girl groups, three or four um, uh different groups trying, you know, recording a song, and hopefully one time it, this this will work. So um, the Meltones, they go in and, and they sing their song, and it catches the attention of Jeff and Ellie, and uh, Jeff and Ellie had this song that they wrote with uh, Phil Spector, and it was called Chapel of Love. And, and Phil Spector had uh, had his own girl groups that he liked to work with, uh, the Crystals and uh, the Ronettes. The, uh, 
the, the Ronettes. Uh, there are a number of them. And um, he actually had had one of them uh, record Chapel of Love, and it, and it didn't work out. And uh, uh, it, it was a very strange character, Phil Spector, and it didn't work out. So he put a hate on this song. He, he never really wanted to see this song ever again. So, but Jeff and, and Ellie, take a, they were the co-writers of... And let, let's I'm take sorry. a quick... Let me take a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, we'll t- hear more about how the song comes to light and how Phil Spector reacted when it's a hit. Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich have this song, Chapel of Love, that they're fond of. Phil Spector has tried to cut it on a couple of his groups. It didn't work out. And Phil is a listed co-writer on the song. It's unclear whether or not how much he contributed to the song. He he had a habit of muscling in for songwriting credits um, when he was producing a song that he didn't necessarily uh, have a clear entitlement to. But be that as may, he's, he's a credited co-songwriter on this. They come in, meet Barry and Greenwich. They cut the song, and it's not a favorite of Lieber and Stoller's either. And so, they don't want to put yeah, it out. So, so they, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to take you back. Still in the meeting uh, stage with Jeff and Ellie, and um, Jeff and Ellie take out the song Chapel of and they uh, play for the Meltone uh, Lycan. But uh, they, they, to be fair, uh, Jeff and Ellie says, so here, I'll leave you this song, see what you can do with it. So uh, definitely leave, leave the girls. They, they um, sit down, work out their own kind of arrangement in three-part harmony. Jeff and Ellie come back. They sing... Chapel Love in their three-part harmony. Jeff and Ellie are blown away. Uh, they want to record the song. They don't like the, the name of the group, the Meltones. And um, eventually they decide uh, on a name called the Dixie Cup. Uh, Dixie, not re- <laughs> There was uh, uh, an item, and still today, uh, paper cups called Dixie Cups. But the Dixie really referred to the fact that the three girls were from the South. So they're the Dixie Cups, and um, they uh, go into the studio and they record this song. And I mean, people come up to New York or Los Angeles, and uh, they, they have a lot of talent, and they uh, they have good songwriting. And they go into the studio and they record, and nothing happens. And the second try, nothing happens, and Finally, on the third and fourth try, they have a big hit, and uh, a way of um, the career takes off. With the Dixie Cups, they go into the studio, they record the song. It's a big hit immediately. Their first first attempt in a studio, they have a huge hit. So when we when we go back to Phil Spector, Phil Spector had put a hate on this song because he, he couldn't make it work. And he said, this song will never be any good, period. And now it's a hit. And he he uh, he hated the Chicks Cups for it because, you know, in his professional and in his expertise opinion, this wasn't a good song. And here is the Dixie Cups. They have this great hit. 
and they uh, they sort of made a fool of him over this, and he would hate the Dixie Cups forever <laughs> after this song. So that that was so sorry. By the way, the Dixie uh, the Dixie Cups never met Phil Spector, and they never met uh, George Goldner either. They only dealt with uh, Jeff and Ellie. And it's also interesting that a crew of New Orleanians play on the song, and and Wardell Kurt, and you'll have to help me with the pronunciation of his name, Ketzergay. Is that how he uh, says his name? Pretty close. I I don't do it any better than you, so I'm going to go with that. <laughs> All uh, right. So, so, so at a New Orleanian arranger, so this and the band includes Alvin Robinson, who also cut some records with Lieber and Stoll around this time, one of which gets covered by the Rolling Stones. So the New Orleanian flavor is definitely strong on that track. It's it's really the the Dixie Cups are this really unique collision of New Orleans R and B and Brill Building Pop. The only one extant uh, other than Alvin Robinson that I just mentioned that I can think of. So it's it's classic that that you know it comes together it explodes and also there's the story of how Lieber and Stoller had kind of been booted out of Atlantic Records for being silly enough to have them audited <laughs> and when it turns out Atlantic owed them a bunch of money Jerry Wexler uh, runs them out of the out of the company and they've got all these songs they've recorded they've they've cultivated these relationships with these younger singer-songwriter producers like um Barry and Greenwich uh, and others and they have this big stack of demos, but they're kind of hapless as far as promoting records or even picking which records to put out. And it's only when Goldner bumps into him on the street and talks him into working with him, and they knew exactly the ups and downs of his relationship. I mean, he's the guy who made Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, and he's the guy who broke Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers with his gambling and everything. They leave him alone with all their demos. And Goldner picks out Chapel of Love as this is the song. And Lieber and Stoller were not into it. But Goldner had Goldner had the golden ears, and yeah, like you said, it's a hit. And uh, even though Phil Spector's pissed off, and as soon as it's a hit, they're out on the road. And tell us about that touring experience. I mean, we're talking all the great names of that period and these kind of package tours: Murray the K, Dick Clark. Who? What was that experience like? And who were some of the people that they they got to know on the road? So. Uh... So the the recording, uh, to go back to Joe Jones, uh, like I said, he was very knowledgeable. Uh, he wasn't very ethical, but he was very knowledgeable. And uh, he brought in to the recording studio people he knew. So uh, as you mentioned, it had a very New Orleans flavor. Of course, a lot of the musicians and the arranger, uh, Wardell Carsegay, I'll, I'll go that way, um, um, were the, the the key sort of the key components backing up uh, the Dixie Cups on the song, and uh, to this day, uh, it, it, it's considered probably one of the best girl group songs ever. Uh, and and like you said, it has just uh, a the great mix of, of songwriter, talent, and and musicians. So. Um, so there's that, and um, and, and uh, George Goldner, Lieber Stoller. So uh, I got to go back to Lieber and Stoller. So they had been in the business since the early '50s, and now it's uh, 1964, and they were at the point where they were trying to 
go in a different direction. They didn't want to write the, the sort of the teen song anymore. So they they were caught between writing. Uh, they wanted to do some more more bluesy rhythm and blues kind of music. Uh, and that was their first sort of break from uh, the team writing that they did before uh, and thinking that they would, would uh, eventually write more adult type of music. So they were caught uh, mid-career, you could say, at Chapel of Love. So they weren't enthusiastic about Chapel of Love because it was another one of these romantic teen songs. Uh, so they, but the, the song just took off on it. So these days we have these big uh, uh, coliseum tours and arenas, and if you're famous, you have you're you're the you're you go to Las Vegas or you tour, and it's uh, and it's uh, let's say it's Metallica. So that's your name. That's the tour, Metallica. Metallica tours. They're going to be 14 cities across the country. Uh, or if you're Olivia Rodriguez, so you're going to tour 32, uh, and it's all Olivia Rodriguez tour. But back in starting the 50s, uh, when Alan Freed organized the first rock and roll tours, it was group tours. It was a, a package. You got 15 of the most current singers, and they'd all travel together by bus, and they'd do... Uh, 30 cities in, in two months, you might say. And the way it worked was you'd uh, get, you know, the, it would be 15 acts and um, the, the singer would come out or the group would come out, do one or two songs off the stage, next singer come in, one or two songs off the stage, next singer, blah, blah, blah. And that's the way it worked on these group tours. And if you're the hottest, had the most current songs, you closed the show. So, um, and, and uh, Alan Freed uh, pioneered this from the, from the earliest days of the 1950s. And, and that's the way it was through the early 60s as well. So when the Dixie Cups began touring, they were on these, uh, these buses. And it wasn't so easy. So, you know, some of the tours went through the South. And again, we're in a, a very tough time in the South for Black performers. First of all, there were no hotels or uh, very few hotels that would take, there weren't even hotels. There may be you know, roadside motels. And a lot of times the black performers couldn't stay in these hotels for us, black and white uh, uh, citizens of the United States in the South couldn't be in the same building a lot of times. Uh, restaurants. You're touring the South and a lot of places uh, elsewhere in the country that they wouldn't let black people in the restaurants. They, so, uh, you know, when Dick Clark did his tours, uh, he would go to the restaurant, do all the ordering for the bus and bring it to the bus because his shows were integrated. He had white performers and black performers. Uh, a lot of the venues in the South you couldn't have black performers and white performers on the same stage. There were a, a lot of problems uh, uh, with these tours. But anyway, those are the tours you signed up for. And the Dixie Cups uh, went right into it. So and let me they, jump in. Uh, 
Let me jump in with our next song sure. snippet. Um, and uh, this is the follow-up song that the Dixie Cups released after Chapel of Love. This is the Dixie Cups doing People Say. Don't you ever tell me we are through. Don't you ever hurt me if you do. Everything they're saying will be true. the Dixie Cups doing people say their follow-up to Chapel of Love and so they have the massive hit with Chapel of Love and then uh, I think three uh, follow-up hits the chart after that so that keeps them on the road in these package tours for the next few years and I have to say Dick Clark comes out, out of this sounding pretty good in comparison to the other people they dealt deal with he's very fair to the black performers and very protective of the people what was the interaction with some of the people on the bus? I know that they worked with the Supremes when they were the no-hit Supremes, and then they're there on the tour <laughs> when the Supremes become the Supremes. Yeah, it's funny. They uh, and 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 they're not the only group to uh, uh, tell me this, but uh, they 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 become friends with the, the Supremes, uh, close friends. Um, actually, Rosa and Mary Wilson were. The friends up until the day Mary Wilson died, but uh, so they were friends with all the Supremes except Diana Ross, who was never very friendly. <laughs> so, that's a story we uh, hear over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, a, you know, there were a, a lot of uh, a lot of episodes on, on on these tours, a lot of famous, you know, singers of the time, but everybody was on these tours. Uh, uh, they became good friends with Gene Pitney, uh, who, who also began as a songwriter in the Brill Building. He wrote, he's a rebel. Uh, but you may know him more as a performer, such as, you know, he's saying, the man who shall be balanced. You know, yep. big guys like that. <laughs> Big interpreter of Bacharach oh, and David. And I, I kind of have to rush you because I want to get, we, we teased the sexual assault. I want to deliver on that. So they they um, have this run on the road in these package tours. They have multiple um, follow-ups, none of which matches Chapel of Love, but several are respectable. Um, and they even traveled to England and Vietnam. But their relationship with Joe continues to be problematic. He he gets him sued by Redbird Records, signs him to ABC, manages to get both record labels pissed off, and, and gets them dropped by ABC after uh, they put out an album on Redbird and then cut an album with ABC, the Riding High album, managed to get him out. But tell us about the really the lowest point of Joe Jones and his relationship with um, Rose with um, Rosa Hawkins. Sorry. So now remember when the Dixie Cups hit, they were essentially just teenagers, and Joe Jones signed as their manager, and he was an adult. So they looked to Joe Jones for um, direction and uh, and essentially uh, to manage everything they ha they had to know so they 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 did they have to uh, move to New York um, and uh, Joe Jones uh, has no income other than the management of 
the Dixie Cups. And he knows that they lean on him for everything. And he takes advantage of that. Uh, just for just for example, he has to find them a place to live. He finds them a place to live in Midtown New York. Um, so there, that expense comes out of, of their earnings. But he's their manager. He gets a, uh, an apartment in the same building. His he takes his uh, expenses out of their earnings. He wants a car, and you have to take them around to gigs or whatever. The car comes out of their earnings. Everything that Joe Jones does comes out of their earnings. They're, now, they're not aware of this. They're just teenagers. They're just coasting. Joe Jones says, you have to be here. They're there. Joe Jones says, um, we're in, uh, we have to meet uh, a DJ as a promotion. They're there. They are under the tutelage, the direction everything their life is all about joe jones and joe jones his life is all about the dixie cups paying for him now he has a girlfriend in new york he has a wife in new orleans they're paying for both of them the kids in uh, his kids in new orleans need to go to private school that comes out of the dixie cups the dixie cups don't know this He's giving them, uh, if they need money, he gives them money. Otherwise, they don't have any money. They have money in their pockets. And like they're walking around with money. They have They have to go to Joe Jones for money. And and all this time uh, that they're, they're big earners and they have hits, like people say, and um, and Chapel of Love, um, uh, that money... Um, World, let's call them, let's call it royalties. Uh, he's continually going to um, Redbird and saying the girls need money for this, and they're giving uh, that money to Joe Jones, who's spending it on himself or sending it to New Orleans and not giving it to the girls. The girls don't know this; they're just assuming they're accumulating royalties somewhere. But Joe Jones is spending it all, and this. Uh, and, and, and it's a couple of things. So on the, the Chapel of Love, you'll see uh, the credits, um, production credits, production credits get shared by um, Joe Jones, even though he really had nothing to do with, with uh, any, anything at all with the production of, of Chapel of Love. He just forced his way in and... Uh, Jeff and Ellie and everybody else sort of uh, looked, a, looked aside and let him um, get some expression correct, which was um, wealthy income for him as well. So it comes to a head. Uh, they're doing a tour. Uh, well, they, their first tour of um, they, they did two tours of England. And uh, uh, in one of the tours, they uh, they're, they're partying with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, so they uh, the Beatles love their music. And they uh, in one of the tours in the United States, they toured with the Animals, Eric Burden and the Animals, and they they became good friends with Eric Burden and the Animals. So on one of their tours of England, they're in the uh, they're, 
you're in the airport ready to go. Um, don't forget London, uh, it, uh, with the advent of the Beatles and the British invasion, uh, London was this great culture center and and uh, and a fashion center for the world. And you would go to Carnaby Street in London and do all their fancy 1960s hippie shopping. And um, while the while Pixie Cups were touring, Joe Jones was um, buying clothes for him and, and, and his wife and his girlfriend left and right, writing checks uh, like, a, like he's a millionaire. So uh, time to go home. They're in the airport. Um, the Dixie Cups, Joe Jones. Um, the, uh, somebody asked for Joe Jones. He says that he turns out these are London policemen and they arrest Joe Jones. Why? He was kiting checks. He was writing all these checks, and he had no money in his account to back up these checks. He was hoping that he can get out of England fast enough before they discovered this, and he wouldn't have to pay for the thousands of dollars of items that he bought shopping. But uh, let me jump finances- in. Let me jump in sure. and play our last song before, and then we'll find out when we get back how Joe Jones got out of England, who helped him out there. And this is the Dixie Cups doing Ico Ico, which is a uh, Mardi Gras Indian song that they repurposed in the studio. And it wasn't planned to be a single, but it jumped out and became their last hit single. This is the Dixie Cups Ico Ico. And that was the Dixie Cups doing their version of a traditional Mardi Gras Indian song, Ico Ico. And so how did they get Joe Jones out of England? They had to call in on one of their uh, rock star relationships to bail him out, right? Right. So they had met the uh, Eric Burden and the Animals on one of those uh, package tours in the U.S. They remained good friends with them. Joe Jones gets um, arrested at the airport. The Dixie Cups are, are all a flutter. Don't forget, they're still young people. They don't realize that they can stand on their own. So uh, the only people they know are um, the animals, <laughs> the, the individual members of the animals, and, and, and that's who they contact. And they eventually get in contact with Eric Burton, who says, oh, my God, here, uh, come to my uh, – you can stay in my apartment. I'll, um, uh, I'll leave you the key. You're on your own. You can stay on your own there. I'll stay somewhere else. I'll get my lawyer on this. They, uh, Eric gets his lawyer to um, – to help Joe Jones, um, and eventually uh, the lawyer, who's very good, um, gets Joe Jones uh, out of a big mess uh, that he found himself in. And uh, so they're staying at Eric Burns' place, and uh, much to their surprise, uh, uh, Joe Jones turns up because uh, the lawyer has gotten, gotten him out of jail. Eric Burton's lawyer has gotten him out of jail. And that night, he, he, he's so uh, 
full of himself because he, you know, he, he got out of this uh, very sticky situation he's in. And um, the, the three, they were, three girls were sharing a bed, uh, Eric Burns huge uh, triple double bed. And, uh, and Joe was supposed to sleep on the couch, but he, he, um, he, he, he decides uh, he's so full of himself. Uh, he wants to go sleep with the girls. And, and he uh, bothers uh, poor Rosa. Now, now, remember, Rosa uh, became a Dixie Cup right, and walked to New York right out of graduation of high school. Um, Rosa never even had a boyfriend. She barely even kissed a boy. So she's never had, then she's in the Dixie Cups, and she's never had a relationship with a guy. And, and, uh, and Joe Jones uh, just uh, has his way. Let, let me just put it that way. He has his way with her that night. Uh, and, and, uh, and Rosa, who's uh, so naive, she just doesn't know what to do at all and, and, and succumbs, you might say, uh, to his advances. And uh, I'm not sure uh, the the legal terminology of this. Uh, you might call it statutory rape. <laughs> and, I mean, it um, seems pretty clear. Yeah, it's it's a at a minimum statutory rape, probably you know sexual assault and and rape, definitely abuse. And it goes on and on when they get back to New York, even as their career sputters out. It's um, yeah, it's just a harrowing story, and and they end up you know, cutting ties with him finally and, and ultimately win a number of legal battles because he will not give up trying, you know, he's trying to put alternate Dixie Cups groups on the road. He's suing them every time they perform. And fortunately, they, they do win in court with him. You know, every time he, he tries this stuff, you know, they win. But it's, it's yeah, it's a very upsetting story. And, and it um, kind of makes you think, you know, about the costs that these performers that create this music that we love so much are paying to, to bring it to us. And, and, you know, it's especially reading about their mother and what a formidable person she was and they're a very moral family. And, and you just want to scream at the book half the time, you know, get them, get these children away from this creep. Um, but, you know, because they were so successful, I guess nobody really realized, you know, the limit, the extent of his perfidy until it was too late. But um, the book is Chapel of Love, the story of New Orleans girl group, the Dixie Cups. Our guest has been Steve Bergsman. Steve, thanks so much for telling this story. Thank And, and co-wrote co the book with Rosa Hawkins of the Dixie Cups. Thanks for bringing this story to light and thanks for sharing it with us. Uh, uh, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, um, always appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Our pleasure. Thanks so much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Travis D. Steimling to discuss his book, Nashville Cats, Record Production in Music City, which tells the tale of Nashville's legendary A-team of session musicians. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Thank you.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.